You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, good morning, and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. My name is Hamad Khan, and you're listening live to Weekend World. It's two minutes past ten on today, Sunday, the 5th of March, 2023. And uh, on Weekend World, we look at the week's news, and we go behind the headlines and uh, have uh, a discussion from an Islamic point of view. And I'm very lucky to be joined uh, today by a regular contributor to the program, uh, Dr. Abdul Aleem. Uh, Dr. Aleem, assalamu alaikum and welcome to Weekend World. Thank you for having me. Dr. Aleem, uh, very, uh, very good to have you back on the program and uh, a few things for us to discuss today. And um, uh, for those who are familiar with um, our studios here at Voice of Islam, um, they'll know that they are at the uh, the Bethlehem Mosque in, in South London. And um, about uh, eight years ago, uh, the uh, Bethlehem Mosque complex uh, was very tragically hit by a, by a fire. And over the course of the last few years, um, those areas of the mosque complex have been rebuilt. And, and yesterday was a very special day uh, for those of us who are familiar with the mosque and who come here regularly, because it was uh, both the peace symposium of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, but it was also the inaugural event uh, for the um, uh, newly opened mosque complex. And um, and Dr. Leem, uh, I, I know that you were uh, keen to be able to, to, to come and visit as well, but um, you will have seen the pictures and, and uh, you'll know that uh, the new mosque complex by the, by the grace of God is, is, uh, looks really, really amazing. Absolutely. It's a, it's a stunning uh, piece of architecture. And uh, I think more important is what goes on inside, which is uh, an organized effort to build peace in, across the world. And uh, that brings us on to the peace symposium, which was an which was a really uh, amazing event and a regular event for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. This peace symposium and at previous peace symposia, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, has spoken and given given warnings to world leaders on the importance of of peace and more more importantly the ways in which peace can be achieved and yesterday was no exception and his holiness spoke at length on the things that that need to be done in today's world in order to ensure that that peace is achieved and and Dr. Lee we're going to listen uh, first of all to a clip uh, of the speech. This is a short clip, five-minute clip from, from the speech from His Holiness yesterday. So let's listen to that. Furthermore, it is essential to note that Muslims are commanded to build their mosque in the direction of the Holy Kaaba, the sacred house of Mecca, and to worship towards it. Yet, it is not enough to merely turn one's physical direction towards the Holy Kaaba. Rather, Muslims and their mosques must fulfill the objectives of the Kaaba outlined in chapter 3, verse 98 of the Holy Quran, where it states that whosoever enters the sacred house of Allah enters peace. The, this Quranic verse means that a true Muslim upon entering a mosque shall himself enter a state of peace and shall be, by fulfilling the rights and commands of God, prove 
a beacon of peace and security for others. All our mosques spiritually mirror the Holy Cup, where in they serve not only as an abode of worshiping God Almighty, but are also a means of fulfilling the rights of mankind and establishing peace in the world. As Muslims, we pray five times a day, and in each prayer, it is incumbent upon us to recite the first chapter of the Holy Quran. In its second verse, Allah the Almighty proclaims that He is the Lord of all the worlds and all of all people. He is not just the provider and sustainer of Muslims, but He provides for and sustains Christians, Jews, Hindus, Sikhs, and indeed people of all religions and beliefs. He grants them life and He fulfills their basic needs through His grace and compassion. Consequently, from the very start of the Holy Quran, Muslims are taught that the fundamental pillar of Islamic teaching is that a sincere Muslim must never harm the people of other faiths or religions, harbor any form of hatred, or speak ill of them in any way, as we are all the creation of God Almighty. Indeed, it is our conviction and teaching that Allah the Almighty fulfills the needs of those who do not appreciate His grace and reject His very existence. Not only does He provide for them, but He also grants them the fruits of their labor. This is the concept of the all-merciful God in whom we believe. Surely, those who have faith in such a gracious God can never seek to undermine the peace and well-being of others. Thus, it is purely to attain the nearness and love of such a benevolent and loving God that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community strives to foster peace and harmony around the world. Ever since our community was founded in the late 19th century, alongside inviting others towards God's, uh, God Almighty, we have consistently practiced and preached a message of mutual understanding and tolerance and sought to establish true peace in the world. As I mentioned earlier, prior to the pandemic, we held this National Peace Symposium each year, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to resume this event in an effort to advance the cause of peace. In addition, we hold similar conferences and events all around the world seeking to bring people together irrespective of their caste, creed, or color under the banner of humanity and strive to identify solutions to the problems faced in the world. Our motivation is for true and lasting peace to emerge so that mankind can save itself from self-destruction. Our objective is to raise awareness of the fact that the world stands 
at the precipice of disaster and to urge humanity to take a step back and consider our responsibilities, not only to the people of today, but also to our future generations. We hold such events so we can proclaim our firm conviction that only in peace lies the salvation of the world. And that was a short clip from the speech by His, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroorama, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community at yesterday's peace symposium here at the Bethel Fatu Mosque. And uh, Dr. Aleem, oh, you, you've listened to the words of His Holiness on, on many occasions before. Uh, yesterday seemed particularly profound and important for, for a few reasons, uh, I think, and, and two main points that I drew out of um, the speech by um, His Holiness was um, from from the clip there, we we got as well the the importance for people of all faiths to recognise that um, uh, it it is important for people to act with justice to 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 each other to to everyone, irregardless of their their background, their their um, uh, their religious uh, affiliations, or whatever the the case may be. And certainly for Muslims, it is incumbent on Muslims to to treat others with with fairness and with justice um, and it's only through through that that um, the real justice and and by extension real peace can be achieved indeed um, I think that uh, his holiness has been uh, mentioning this for a while now uh, beginning with his um, peace symposium addresses from um, you know and uh, even 2008 2009 so he's been talking about this for many years. What I noted of significance in his uh, speech this time was uh, the fact that he mentioned that his uh, addresses and his uh, uh, guidance to the world has uh, fallen on uh, deaf ears to mm. a certain extent. And yeah. uh, that doesn't give us a lot of hope uh, in where we are going to look forward uh, in terms of future. Um, obviously, he ended his speech on uh, his uh, fervent prayers for humanity to realize mm. The path it is on actually is the path to um, ultimate self-destruction and uh, his prayer that uh, humanity realizes its creator and restores its relationship with the creator in the context of uh, improving human relations which have to do with establishing peace security and dignity of all human life and as you as you rightly mentioned his holiness has really over over the last two decades been again and again reiterating the importance of of justice and the importance of treating um people with with fairness wherever they come from in the world and whatever their financial background and and whatever their um a cultural or religious background may may be and and that that is the only way in which we can we can achieve uh, peace and justice in the in the context of the current conflict that is occurring in in um uh, in Ukraine um his holiness was a, was at pains to point out that the world needs to pivot towards peace and that there should be an emphasis on peace talks through all of this, and uh, uh, and I, th uh, uh, I think if I'm remembering correctly, His Holiness says there needs to be a good faith dialogue between all parties, um, and he said that that is something that appears to be to be missing, and unfortunately, at the, at the moment, what we see with this conflict is rhetoric upon rhetoric, and and. 
he also warned about the importance of not seeking revenge. And, uh, and he gave a few examples from Islamic history in that respect as well. Um, and that if, if the focus is on revenge because of perceived injustice, which happens uh, during the course of conflict or war, uh, then, then ultimately you, you won't achieve a lasting peace. Indeed. Um, I think that um, um, what he was referring to, and also I think he has been uh, saying this for a while in the sense that uh, humanity needs to come together and perhaps uh, our own voice as the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, although we have large outreach across the world, we still don't have the kind of access we need to the mainstream media and other outlets that somehow defeat our purpose. But um, you know that um, the Ahmadiyya community has been giving out peace prizes over the mm. last few years to critical people who are actually our partners in building peace. And yesterday there were two peace prizes given out. Yeah. One was to um, uh, this gentleman who is from Japan and he's been making a lot of effort on trying to get uh, people to see the um, absolute devastation that can happen, mm. uh, which happened in Nagasaki. We know that the bombs today are far more powerful than the one that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So he's been trying to build peace. Um, then the other peace prize went to a lady who has been working in Mozambique for over 30 years, mm. trying to bring up and helping orphan children. So there are obviously a lot of um, very excellent examples of people building peace day by day. Um, and, and she said also that... Uh, it's not something that can come about automatically. You have to actually get up every day and build a bit more peace, mm. both within one's own self and around the people. Uh, so, yes, I think that um, to me, yesterday stood out in the sense of calling all humanity to a common purpose, mm. which is also what the uh, Khalifa uh, has constantly said that the Quran calls uh, to humanity in terms of getting together on what is good. And, and preventing what is not good. Um, I think that uh, that call needs to be heard much more strongly and received much more carefully than before because of the situation that we are all in. We talked about this last time in the, in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and how this can actually uh, get out of control mm. because it's uh, a brinkmanship going on between world major powers. And uh, one, uh, one uncalculated move or a thoughtless or um, a move on behalf of one part of the party could actually lead to a really, really devastating catastrophe. Uh, indeed, and and you know that that underlining, uh, and this is something His Holiness has spoken on on many occasions, un underlining the importance of um, safeguarding the world from the horrors of nuclear war, and it's something that His Holiness mentioned yesterday in his speech. And as you said, uh, the the winner of the two thousand twenty two. Uh, and the Muslim Peace Prize, uh, this gentleman, Tadatoshi Akiba from Japan, who's who's been an, a, an activist against uh, nuclear weapons for a very long time, underlining the the experience and the horrors of what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I guess there's there's a there's two parts to this. We can pivot also to this question of of revenge, etc. Um, but the 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 importance of um, um, being ac actively 
campaigning against uh, nuclear weapons and underlining to the world that 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 there needs to be it is absolutely essential that the world uh, not go down this route of of um, of nuclear war because that will that will cause ultimate devastation and um, and has the potential to leave um, uh, the entirety of the planet and the entirety of mankind completely devastated uh, and would be the worst legacy that we could leave leave for our children and and just re- reflecting again on this uh, a theme that his holiness had yesterday on on um on revenge or retaliation um we saw the the nuremberg trials um after the 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 second world war um uh, but the the idea that um those those sorts of retribution should only be in the hands of the victor um, because of course it was, uh, and I think it has been universally accepted, that Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the devastation that was wrought uh, on the civilian population in those countries by those horrific bombs um, could very easily be described as a war crime. And yet, um, there was there was no um, retribution or retaliation on uh, the Americans as a result of what happened there. And so it is. It is, I think, a, perhaps a reflection that it is e- equally important for us to recognise that in order to achieve peace, we need to see a resolution, and that resolution can't come through revenge, and it can't come through um, pressing down on those who lose in inverted commas the war, um, because ultimately, then that that is that is only going to lead to further enmity and and the potential for further wars uh, down the road, um, and. Uh, and and is is not an approach that uh, uh, that that ultimately is going to bring all people together. And um, beautiful examples from the the history of of uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, in in that respect. Yes, I think that um, one of the things that we need to perhaps a bit uh, uh, thread a bit more is this whole concept of um, what is the foundations of building lasting peace. Mm. Um, and I think that um, uh, the head of the Ahmadiyya movement has been talking about this. One of the uh, key pillars he's been talking about over the last few years has been the establishment of absolute justice. And I believe you uh, mentioned that when you say that there were no uh, repercussions or uh, reparations imposed on uh, parties who had committed uh, war crimes. Uh, and that is still so, um, despite... Um, you know what happened in 1945 there have been events across the world which have led to enormous amount of human suffering where we know who the guilty party was and and there are parts of the world that are still under the grip of those kinds of uh, cruel cruelty and injustices we know we have talked about this for a while now what is going on in yemen in terms of a war on uh, yemen uh, a, a very, very impoverished country. Uh, the estimates that are coming out of Yemen are horrifying. Uh, you know, mm. millions of children are undernourished and at the verge of, uh, you know, populations are at the verge of death. Um, we know what is happening in, uh, in the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis. Every day we hear these news. Uh, and unfortunately, global governance institutions have failed to 
come uh, come up with a solution and even in, uh, sort of come up with a uh, with a, an answer to how justice can be exercised until those open wounds which continue to bleed um, you know are addressed properly and dressed properly i believe that uh, peace will be under threat constantly and that is why the the, the need to keep um, building it uh, on a daily basis um and also i think that um, the other pillar that he talked about is uh, security so peace is dependent both mm-hmm. on uh, absolute justice and security that is provided to humanity and we have talked about this uh, in in one of our other shows but uh, the concept of human security is a very broad concept mm-hmm. and uh, you know unfortunately in many parts of the world uh, the concept of security has been hijacked by the concept of national security mm-hmm. which is that mm-hmm. state security is paramount and state security has to do with uh, with defense and maintenance of large armies or uh, you know equipment that extremely expensive um and uh, can actually hide senses of uh, ultra nationalism which are also mm-hmm. as destructive as um, as uh, any military force uh, that can be so i think that uh, this debate between national security and human security is a very very critical one i think the uh, european governments realized this and there have been several papers published on why it is important to focus on human security um i uh, in 2004 i addressed a conference uh, on behalf of unicef and i mentioned why it is this is critical because mm-hmm. um usually the dominant discourse across uh, the world academic community is about national security and uh, the concept of security has been so wedded to national security that uh, the the concept of human security has been almost overshadowed by uh, that prominence um as you know in 2003 uh, the secretary general had actually established a commission on, on human security that wrote a very interesting report this was headed by Amartya Sen, a Nobel Prize economic uh, Nobel Prize winner from India, mm. uh, and it talked about um, three pillars of uh, it's a sort of seven essentially seven essential dimensions of human security, mm. and these are economic security, food security, health security, uh, environmental security, personal security, community security, and political security. Mm. So you see how. multi-dimensional this part of uh, human security is and we know that all these seven dimensions actually currently are under threat so we have uh, in the series of our talks over the last few months we have talked about the failure of the global economic uh, architecture mm. where we know uh, the rise of uh, economic and financial inequality among the poor and the rich in the countries and among the countries and across the regions we know um, the issue with food security where we know there a lot of uh, food is being wasted uh, even as we speak in many developed parts of the world which can be sent off to you know uh, uh, starve to starving humanity and um, you know uh, stop ch- children from being malnourished uh health security we know came under came under a huge huge amount of threat because of covid and mm. we all know that it didn't really lead to um any lasting solutions and we still are really you know recovering from the greed of the farm farm pharmaceutical sector and how 
somehow the vaccines were uh, presented as uh, as the only solution and uh, and uh, lots of people made money on it uh, we all know the problem with environmental security uh, the whole issue of uh, you know the carbon emissions mm-hmm. and how the parts of the world uh, that uh, uh, you know use up a lot of carbon uh, equivalents and uh, now are are imposing the same standards on those countries that now want to make economic progress uh, personal security is certain everywhere and, and we have talked about this rise of narcissism among populations and mm-hmm. civilization and people holding corporate power who are more and more narcissistic um the human need for security is is being neglected family structures um in many societies same for community security and political security we know uh, how uh, surveys have shown the rise of illiberal and autocratic governments uh, across the world and how democracy is on decline because of the unregulated and uh, Uh, and uh, rapid rise of unregulated uh, capitalist development so there is a huge amount of threat across the world to human security and yet uh, when the uh, when we talk about security we often are hijacked by academic experts and people who want to tilt the debate toward national security and hyper nationalism and this is very tragic um, i think that this needs to be addressed and uh more and more nations have to start talking about how they can actually build on human security and its all seven dimensions uh, let me also mention one important part of um, the human security commission report which is uh, talking about uh, three dimensions of human security and these are freedom from fear freedom from want and the freedom from indignity mm-hmm. and all these three uh, freedoms are under threat um as we have mentioned um certainly the freedom from indignity is where we we know that almost a billion people today in the world are considered poor and and face indignity uh, a situation of indignity every day in their lives um freedom from want uh, is is clear uh, because of the uh, lack of uh, you know food security and the possible threat of uh, environmental uh, problems causing uh you know crop failures uh, freedom from fear is is a is a big one and mm. we have talked about uh, the childhood experience of trauma and how family breakdowns and lack of a proper mirroring in childhood can lead to uh, you know lifelong um, incapacity of people to make correct decisions to find peace within themselves and to find peace in the society and all of these things are under threat So when the head of the Amadi movement mentioned these and has been talking about this over a decade uh, he's been uh, basically focusing on trying to address the humanity and tell them that unless these freedoms of rest are restored and until these freedoms are really addressed properly fully in the context of establishing absolute justice and human security we are not going to likely see any lasting peace uh, and that is why uh, Uh, you know there is a need for more and more stakeholders and other players to come in and help us out as i am the movement to try and uh, you know build peace uh, every day uh, thank you dr leeman and i mean you you you've gone through quite a bit there in in talking about human security and the idea of human security and a, p- a pivot away from 
the traditional concept of of security driven by the sort of the idea that you would a nation state they have got their borders they need to protect their borders and and i guess that that idea goes back a a long time doesn't it because i mean if if you look at even very the very early history recorded history of humanity back to the bronze age um you had city states and um and as they started to grow they became uh they they had their territorial integrity and they would try to protect themselves militarily from uh, invaders and from from other city states that were growing growing up around them and that's that seemed to be the only way in which they could think about their understanding of security because the immediate security of the inhabitants of that city had to be protected so the only way to do that was to have a standing army one would hope that in the intervening 5000 years humanity had evolved in terms of its thinking and its understanding and and its um uh its philosophical approach and and certainly the the world view of the major world religions and and Islam in in the in the case in which we're obviously going to reflect on today is that this is this is not the way in which we ultimately are going to achieve peace and that peace and 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 by extension security and that human security uh has to be a function of something that is that is supported for all of humanity and that no one should there should not be any inequity in terms of the provision of human security because once you get inequity um then you're ultimately going to lead to a, a worsening of your own security as much as you are of the security of the other person and that is that is both a both a profound idea but also a a, a very obvious idea that if if i uh, if we one doesn't seek to protect the rights of other individuals ultimately your own rights will suffer and i wondered if you had a reflection on that dr lim yes i i believe that that's um, that's uh, very well said uh, because obviously um, you know the the uh, humanity forms a large family in one sense uh, the uh, the creation of one creator and uh, that is what the hirdi abadi movement also mentioned yesterday mm-hmm. but what is is a huge paradox is that uh, if you look at the uh, evolution of human civilization you have the early agricultural transformation then you have the industrial uh, revolution coming out of the west and now you have this uh, huge movement towards technological revolution uh, every time uh, human productivity has increased mm. and now producing goods and services across the world uh, which are far more uh, available than they were uh, you know a few thousand years back so the age of prosperity that we are seeing is unprecedented in human human history mm. uh poverty has been reduced to very very low levels uh you know i was looking at some numbers uh in even in uh in late uh, 1920s uh and 1800s there was a large part of the world that was poor and today that uh poor population has been really reduced to less than 10 to 20% of humanity so 
one wonders why there is not more peace and and justice because if it was about resources and if it was about access to resources and information then a large part of humanity actually does have it mm. uh, true there is uh, there is inequity and inequality among the nations among the people within the nations but certainly we have not had humanity with such amount of prosperity and well-being ever in the history of humanity Hmm. and yet we have this paradox where increasingly we find people unhappy and um rise of conflict and uh, you know the growth of military industrial complex that puts uh, security of everyone around the world in under threat so one wonders what is going on and why is this uh, paradox where on one hand you see uh, the possibility that human humanity can be actually equal and the goal is within sight uh you know the sdgs are up in 2030 and there seems to be steady progress being made in terms of you know achieving those goals and yet we are all really really worried and upset and uh, you know on the verge of uh, of nervous breakdown because we keep worrying that something is really going to happen to humanity which is not being constantly articulated by many people not just we have the ever the movement but you know experts across the world have been talking about this large conflict that is on the horizon mm. and i think that uh, the uh, that uh, the uh, the new yesterday pointed this out in a very very succinct way which needs to be elaborated he talked about the rise of greed and materialism mm. and you know you refer to uh, the religious texts including christianity and and the quran from uh, from muslims uh, it talks about uh, greed as being a very large factor in terms of people being um, people not being happy with what they have but they would like more and more and more of what others have mm. um in the quran there is an example of two brothers and one of them had nine nine and um lambs and one brother had only one and uh, he wanted that one lamb from him also mm. uh, for which he was willing to kill his brother uh, and so i think that there are uh, a, there are factors here at play which uh, the philosopher was pointed out yesterday which is the rise of materialism and the want and the greed for more and there is no other way to explain this other than this factor that you know despite the rise of uh, rise of prosperity and huge amount of resource mobilization and availability of you know consumer goods um there seems to be even more restlessness across the world um and the only solution that we can uh, go back to is what he said was to go back to what the creator uh, wanted us to do in the first place which was to you know live in harmony and shun greed and uh, do not indulge in uh, more crass materialism mm. um so apparently there is a psychological issue here at play and uh, when we say that um, that there is a need for people to come together and humanity can be one uh, there is obviously a large uh, uh, factor here which is to be playing on the emotions and the inclinations of the political and the multinational complex and the corporate leadership that seems to be sustaining us all in a direction where we seem to be sitting on a bus and the, there's a there's a couple of drivers who are driving the bus madly and you know the whole audience or, or the whole passengers who are sitting who are in majority actually are unable to do anything 
which is kind of uh, scary isn't it i mean mm. if you are sitting in a bus like that and you have a driver who is drunk or you know who doesn't know what he's doing yet no passenger can actually get up and sit and uh, get up and go to the driver and talk to him and say or hold the driver stop the bus and say look we want to take over uh, you hear constantly um protests across the world which only appear in alternative press not in ma- mainstream media where people in europe people in the us people in developing part of the world have been constantly demonstrating against injustices against conflict against this mad rush for greed and materialism and yet it doesn't seem to affect um any of the uh, you know any of the current uh processes that seem to have uh, taken on in their own, taken on their own life and seem to be rolling on without us being able to do anything which is quite a uh you know a distressing scenario to have um and and then i think uh, he was mentioning yesterday again and i believe a lot of people actually agreed to that yet i i believe that a lot of people left mm, that uh, symposium with uh, with uh, uh, hope uh because you also mentioned that uh, you know there is a need for us to all come together and that there is a way to to uh, not only launch physical effort to be able to talk to people about this to do something about this in their personal life but also to pray uh for humanity's uh, safety and and the concerns that we all have that need to be addressed and i th- i think that's very true dr lean the 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 message ultimately the message of of hope um is is absolutely critical and but reflecting back on what you said before about materialism and this and this uh was a core part of the message from his holiness that he that he believes that the reason why there is so much uh lack of peace so much injustice in the world is is because humanity has Uh, continue to go headlong down this path of more and more materialism of uh, of in, of of a rampant individualism which has which has led to uh led to people only thinking about what they can have for themselves and and as you quite rightly pointed out we can we can remove th- even the most basic um poverty from individuals so that they have enough food and they have enough water um but if we are if we're constantly moving towards a state where our concerns are about ourselves and about what we uh want and uh, and, uh, and about um fulfilling our own material desires um then we are going to continue to be in a situation where um uh, humanity is going to remain in a state of insecurity uh, ultimately which is which is going to lead to a lack of peace and uh, and and more more broadly a lack of uh, uh um of justice for for the majority of of humankind um and i and i guess in in thinking also about this uh, about the message of of hope in this the solutions appear to be um very clear uh in that if uh our political leadership throughout the world uh were able to move towards this idea of ensuring the security uh in a in a very different sense of uh, the individuals both within 
their own country, but also throughout the world, um, are not military security, not security in the sense of um, I've got more bombs than you have, we've got more guns than you have, but in the, in the much broader sense of the things that you've mentioned, the security uh, which involves a, a freedom from, uh, from fear, from want and from indignity, and if and if the focus is on on these very fundamental aspects of um, uh, of the of the story of human life, then we can really move towards a world where um, peace is at the core, and is the uh, and is the uh, uh, is the moving political principle rather than what seems to be the case at the moment, which is uh, a political system which is riven towards um, economic. Um, uh, expansion, uh, unfortunately, the cost of of um, everything else ultimately, um, and and uh, and a situation which, at the end of it, then leads to more pain and suffering rather than the thing which which is um, considered to be uh, the goal, which is uh, some some in some sense um, a betterment of of uh, human life. Um, through e- economic gain, um, and we and we've spoken about the idea of human capital and and the development of the individual human as being the uh, the 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 dri- or what should be the driving force uh, for uh, individuals as well as for society and and by extension for politicians. Um, uh, how do you think, as individuals, Dr. Lim, uh, we can um, give give voice to? How important this is, and and um, and get our politicians to the same to that same space, because at the moment, as you quite rightly said, it doesn't feel like there are any politicians within within the spaces that we are are occupying and within our uh, uh, political choices, uh, which are are going to lead us to to that sort of um, understanding of uh, how we can how we can move humanity forward. That's a very tough one, and I, I think we have talked about this um, in in uh, earlier uh, podcasts. Um, I think one of the things that um, I believe uh, was also mentioned by uh, His Holiness in in an earlier symposium was the um, was what you mentioned in terms of individualism and uh, the our stress on individual. You know, uh, the concept of of human rights has been a major pivot. Uh, on which the 1945 League of Nations and then 1948, you know, United Nations was built. Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a very, very important document that has been used to shape um, discourse and, you know, uh, design several international treaties and conventions that are really excellent for establishing rights of individuals in all nations across the world. Mm. Uh, but I think that one of the things that uh, seems to have been missed is the equal emphasis on on duties versus rights. Mm. And uh, one of the symposiums, His Holiness actually talked about uh, the fact that the emphasis on rights actually does lead to a lot of individualism and everyone saying that I have a right and that my right needs to be fulfilled. Well, if everyone has rights, then... Uh, then who is going to fulfill them? And if we insist on rights and we do not pay attention to our duties to others, then we have a problem. Uh, in some cases, actually, 
establishment of rights and imposition or fulfillment of rights also leads to conflict because nobody is willing to do their duty and yet wanting to have their rights. Mm. Um, and I think that, um, as Olinus pointed out, that unless we actually, in fact, overemphasize our duties, it will be impossible to solve the problem of deficits of the rights. Mm. Uh, so I think as individuals, as you were saying, uh, one of the solutions actually is to um, also turn the discourse on rights uh, to pay attention to concomitant or parallel of the duties. Uh, and I'm afraid that that has not happened. So in terms of our uh, discussion today, I believe uh, not only just human security needs to be emphasized in terms of a paradigm of security, but also in the paradigm of, uh, paradigm of human rights, we need to also pay attention and emphasize human duties. Uh, and I believe that if you were to if you were to able to turn around this discourse on rights equally emphasizing the discourse on duties, then part of the problem could be solved because each of um, each of my right also has a duty attached to it. And unless I pay attention to fulfilling that duty, I should not expect my right to be fulfilled um, because uh, you know because uh, if I'm unable to carry out my relations with other humans, which is what he emphasized yesterday in terms of the relationship with the creator is based on good relationship with, with your fellow beings. Uh, you are, you will not be able to create a sense of peace and well-being among your, uh, your fellow beings. And so actually uh, there is no time to in fact uh, do an inverse or not not at the cost of fulfillment of rights but certainly emphasize more and more the concept of duties within the uh, within the framework of treaties and uh, conventions and that have been signed by international uh, you know international conventions that have been signed by the governments and i i believe that that discourse could be one of the ways to try and address uh, uh, this issue of uh, universal violation of rights everywhere because nobody's willing to do their duty. So that is, I believe, one of the other mm -hmm. things that we could talk, we can perhaps elaborate later. But I think the last thing that we could talk about essentially is this, um, is this need and global movement to start co coming together, uh, different institutions. Yesterday, uh, you know, in the symposium, we had one Japanese, we had one Swiss lady who's working in Africa, uh, and, um, you know, 40 countries uh, sort of represented in that symposium. That is already, you know, a, a beginning to say we need to start cobbling together a global coalition for peace, bring together different people who are on different platforms to try and ask them what can they do to actually help the Amadiya movement, which has been saying this over the last 10 years and, uh, you know, create partnerships that could actually uh, start mobilizing public opinion and, you know, force the political leaders to try and understand that they are not acting in the best interest of humanity. And I, I guess that really goes to the heart of this idea of a sort of a, a transnationalism and internationalism. Um, which the Ahmadiyya Muslim community embodies perfectly in many ways, Dr. Aleem. You know, I, and it's something that, that we've spoken about before on this program and reflected on m many times. 
uh, here on uh, on the Voice of Islam, which is this idea that that as a as an Ahmadi Muslim, I can I can go anywhere in the world, and if I find another Ahmadi Muslim, I will be w- welcomed with open arms and and in, and embraced as uh, uh, as a brother, and 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 that that idea um, is is one that that extends through to to the rest of humanity it's not it's not an idea that you know it's a it's it becomes a principle a guiding principle i think for Ahmadi muslims uh, in the world um and and that idea of empathy that idea of of striving to welcome others and to and to um to help others no matter who they are actually um becomes embedded within within our psyche and i'm and i'm sure that that as a as a guiding principle is a very important one for for everyone to embrace um and you know it, i i get reminded of um the words of the um uh of the english poet john Donne. you know no man is an island alone unto himself um and and this this idea that the, of our of our shared humanity and and the importance of of recognizing that goes to the to the heart of 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 what you've what you've just mentioned that if we if we can work to collaborate together no matter what our national background no matter what our political background may be um then then by having this unified voice uh, we can uh, work to to uh, turn the tide of of uh, uh of the political uh direction of the uh, of the world and um and it's only by doing that that we're going to be able to really create any sort of change yes and i, I think that that's um what you have captured is is very well i believe that um there is a need to of course uh you know pay attention to these what they call now a poly crisis that is going on mm. um we are all on the verge of a major economic upheaval because of the uh, the uh, the problem of uh, you know misgovernance of economic institutions across the world uh, we also have uh, uh, you know uh, united nations that is almost becoming paralyzed because it's unable to solve problems the security council is constantly locked in uh, debates that do not really uh, go anywhere mm. uh, and so i think that uh, i think that we are on the verge of a very very large change across the world in terms of the emergence possible emergence of alternative institutions of global, global governance uh, it just might be and i'm going on a limb on this one to say that um that uh, it is it is likely that um, the world might go through a very very uh serious turmoil uh perhaps uh, reforming itself into different kinds of governance units uh, perhaps smaller communities that are responsive to local needs uh living in smaller communes uh that might be an outcome of uh, you know a, a large catastrophe that seems to be very well on the horizon but there seems to be also hope uh, even beyond it um i think that uh, there is a possibility that uh uh that those people who uh, will perhaps take the uh, reins of governance after that would be able to understand this and you know move towards what we have been talking about yet i think the problem still remains and what uh, remains on my mind and your mind essentially is uh is it possible to prevent this large uh, catastrophe that seems to await all of us mm. and uh, unfortunately at this time 
it seems that uh, you know so it's going to be it could be delayed but it seems to not uh, be going away um and you know whether or not um and you know when when you look at uh, mainstream media and even sometimes alternative media people tend to try and describe who is at fault and who's to blame for what is happening mm. and i believe time has passed to talk about that the blame and who is who's which party is at conflict i think time is now to say there there should be humanity coming together to avoid at all costs the huge catastrophe that is waiting us awaiting us that could be the world war 3 Uh, or or major calamity uh, like large earthquakes that are already happening so the question is um how do we really bring about that mobilization uh, for raising awareness and you know your podcast is one of the major instruments that we use but i hope that there are other people around the world and other uh, such media who are uh, you know talking about these issues in as uh, as, as much earnest as we are doing right now mm. here in your studios and and i guess that's ultimately that's that's the thing that has to be underlined that it is it is conversations it is speaking out it it is recognizing um the direction of travel as his holiness has been pointing out for for such a long time and and sadly the world as we said at the beginning doesn't seem to be taking heed of those of those warnings and there is the there is the potential that we are on the on the brink of a precipice which will lead to uh, worldwide devastation and and in many ways it it and I, i guess there there's a psychological blocker here dr alim because people can't envisage it they can't they can't think about it and you know there's a reflection on the early days of covid when people were trying to wrap their heads around um the potential um awfulness of what of what could happen if if waves of covid infection were to pass through populations and as it was it 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 did happen in 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 many countries in many ways leading to the deaths of of tens of thousands of people but most people couldn't wrap their heads around that idea it was it was too horrific an idea for them to even contemplate or understand it was too much and and um the mind seeks to protect itself from horror um and and i guess part of the challenge is that people will seek to protect themselves from even the horrific idea that um the earth may be utterly devastated humanity may in some fundamental senses fail um unless we change the direction of travel um and uh, and work to avoid uh, an all out global conflict yes indeed i think that that's what um, is the is the real worry here and we have talked about this um that the <clears throat> that the scale of devastation is unimaginable um just like when covid struck the first time uh, nobody was ready and nobody was prepared that uh, you know you would have to actually confine yourself to your room for many many months mm. um that was just i believe uh, you know uh, uh, a sort of a small advertisement to what could happen if the nuclear power of several countries uh, is unleashed upon mm. humanity um we have talked about this and we know that the current nuclear arsenal that uh, is over 12000 uh, nuclear weapons in ready state can actually destroy the world seven times over 
um, with all humanity annihilated. Now imagine this kind of power being unleashed, uh, and you know people still questioning why do we indeed need to have that kind of annihilating power or destructive power in the hands of humanity. Uh, you know that question still remains. Yet we do have it, and uh, nobody has ever talked about. You know, uh, other than the MDO movement, and now other people talking about this, the fact that this can be, uh, you know, a, a real uh, devastation that would, uh, as the uh, as Khalifa al quoted yesterday, someone that the Europe could become actually a, 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 a radio or, or you know radioactive uh, zone mm. which could not be inhabited for many many years to come. God forbid that might happen. So you know, let's keep praying that the political and the global leadership realizes the extent of, of uh, seriousness of this issue and, you know, comes to its senses before uh, something really uh, devastating happens. Um, thank you, Dr. Lean, for that. We've, we've come up to the end of the, of the first hour of today's program and um, lots to reflect on from uh, the peace symposium yesterday and the things that we've discussed today. And I'm, and I'm sure, Dr. Lee, we will continue this conversation through in the future because the, the the critical importance of continuing to voice these worries and these concerns about the direction of travel of humanity is is uh, ever important. Um, and uh, you know, we, we, we'll continue to seek to reflect the words of His Holiness, um, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in, in that respect. So um, thank you very much, Dr. Halim, for your participation in today's program. Thank you. Uh, and that was uh, Dr. Abdul Alim, um, who is a regular contributor to, to uh, our program here, Weekend World, on, on the Voice of Islam. Um, and uh, as I said, we're coming up to the end of the first uh, hour of, of today's program. And um, lot, lots of a very deep discussion that we've had in this, in this first hour. If you want to listen again, you can do so by going to SoundCloud and just search for uh, uh, Voice of Islam and then search for Weekend World and you'll, you'll find um, uh, today's uh, program. But you'll also uh, uh, be able to listen to previous episodes of, of Weekend World. And we're coming up to the news now, but if you do want to participate in the discussion, you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK, um, and, uh, and you can also phone us on 0208-687-7878. So keep tuned to uh, Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum. And you're listening to Weekend World and the Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past 11 on today, Sunday, the 5th of March, 2023. Uh, and now there's an opportunity for us to listen to a fantastic interview with Dr. Tosif Khan. Uh, on the benefits of the health benefits of honey uh, and uh, some of the secrets of the honeybee and how it relates to um, the words of wisdom in the Holy Quran. Uh, so let's listen to that now, and, and that'll be the last piece for today's program here on Weekend World. And thank you for listening to Weekend World. And today we're talking about bees and how what if anything, has religion got to do with bees or Islam got to do with bees? Um, would you mind starting from there and just uh, giving our listeners a, a little bit of insight into um, the relationship between bees, honeybees, and, uh, and Islam? Uh, thank you for asking this question. It's a very interesting question. And mm. 
if uh, honey and honey bees have a special relationship with Islam. Uh, and uh, it is because in the Holy Quran, which has 114 chapters, one of the chapters is named the bee hmm. uh, or the bees. And uh, it's uh, very interesting because it has two verses about the honey bee and about honey. And it, and if I will just read out those, the translation of the verses, hmm. so and then explain why this is very important uh, for many Muslims around the world. And the translation is, And thy Lord has inspired the bee, saying, Make thy, thy, thou houses in the hills and in the trees and in the trellises which they build. Hmm. Then eat of every kind of fruit and then pursue submissively the paths prescribed by your Lord. There comes forth from their bellies a drink of varying hues. Therein is a cure for men. Surely in that is a sign for a people who reflect. So this is this two verses. So mm. in the idea is that uh, what the Holy Quran is saying is that God inspired or revealed or, or sent a message to the bee saying that you should make your houses in different places, then go to these flowers and uh, collect, uh, go to them and collect the good things from them. And then these bees make something which is of different colors. Mm -hmm. And that thing which we call honey is actually a cure for mankind. Right. Okay. So that's really interesting. So that that gets so, so. I guess the first bit is, as you said, the first bit is that the idea that God has revealed to the bee. I mean, first of all, there's a whole chapter in the Holy Quran, which is it's called the bee. The bee. Yes. Um, and then, as you said, the so the message is that people should look at bees, and reflect on how they behave and what they do. And the first idea is that God has revealed to be. So can we, can we look at that first of all? Because that's a, quite, a pretty incredible idea that God has actually revealed to be or directed bees in some way to do the things that they do. That's a, I think that that's a, so. So if we start from this, it's very, very fascinating. So bees, uh, so so just, just on a side note that this chapter is chapter number 16 and the mm. verses are 69 and 70. Right. Um, so if and in the end of the verse, actually God says, as you rightly said, that it is a sign for those who reflect. Mm. So it is God is saying you should reflect on these verses, reflect mm. on what these verses talk about the bee behavior, and from there you will find uh, fascinating things. And it's very interesting because bees or honeybees, because these are honeybees which produce honey, uh, have fascinated mankind for thousands of years. Mm. So bees live in a colony. Um, and uh, and they are governed by one queen bee and other worker bees. And it's very interesting that man has always looked at the beehive as an example for how humans live. Mm. Bees are totally different from other many other insects. Uh, ants might be similar, but bees have uh, ha are even different in many ways. And, and people have been fascinated how bees can coordinate so much activity. Mm. Uh, the individual bee does, has a very small brain. But when they get together, they somehow 
are connected they can talk to each other and they coordinate so many activities together they make their hives in different places so in the trees or in uh, they they are very happy to live in the boxes that we give them which mm. is quran talks about the trellises which is uh, in arabic the, the in the arabic uh, word ya uh, shirun is used which can also mean a box in which an animal can be kept mm. so bees are ready to be to be to be domesticated mm. by men uh bees make their hives in the the mount uh, the hills or the mountains and on the trees and the fascinating thing is that uh it is very difficult charles darwin for example the great uh, uh the, the person who came up with the theory of evolution uh, by natural selection he actually says that the honey bees are an enigma hmm. because how can the evolution cannot explain this because honey bees have given up uh reproduction so all the worker bees so one hive has 60000 bees and one queen bee nobody lays eggs they have given given up their reproductive ability for the benefit of the hive and only queen bees lays eggs mm-hmm. and the colony actually they expand but they actually reproduce by splitting so colony splits eventually yes uh and a new queen is formed and this process actually if you look at it from a very uh from a natural selection point of view is inefficient because uh other uh, ideally every bee should be able to reproduce the more the more uh, reproduction you have the more the ability for the children to survive and your genes to 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 uh to go through to the next generation but mm. that's not how the bees actually um organize themselves yes. and it's a huge enigma and a lot of discussions a lot of debate and a lot of theories are there but not not a single one is satisfactory yes yes so perhaps a rethinking of this of the idea about how bees have evolved or the bee colonies have evolved Re- really interesting really fascinating um so co- coming back to the that original verse that you quoted so within that you mentioned the fact that um in the holy quran it says that look at the look at the honey bee look at the way in which it behaves the houses that it makes and the fact the fact that it collects the the good things out of various types of fruit mm-hmm. what what how do you think that is important what what is the significance of that particular part of the verse okay so the houses we explained um so the bees actually make those houses and then they go out and the, the uh and the, the the holy quran says that eat of every kind of fruit hmm. now over here i'll just digress for a minute to explain yeah. uh there is a uh, an allegation that the holy quran uses the word fruit but not flower hmm. okay but bees go to flowers not fruit hmm. it's very interesting because the arabic word that is used is samarat and samar if you look at the arabic dictionary the the leading arabic dictionary is like lane you will see that it actually means uh an outer projection of a flowering plant and that and the uh, the the fruit actually comes from the flower so that and that and bees also go to um on the on the trees they also collect pollen from the trees uh, from the flowers they also collect um propolis which is on the branches so these are also some outer projections mm. so quran uses a very encompassing word which actually 
includes the flower but includes the other things that bees collect so it's the wow. ideal word for this usage right, right. Uh, so it doesn't restrict the the meaning of the of the thing that that bees collect yes yes incredible this is uh, fascinating because the quran uh, over time when people uh, raise allegations that mm. that's the that if 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 the quran has come from god then there should not be any mistake in the scientific uh the verses that talk about scientific phenomenon mm. and that was one allegation but it is easily answered uh yes. if you reflect on it and yeah. actually see yeah. like how why the quran in this uh, uh, god with uh, in his wisdom has used the, the most appropriate word mm. that is possible here mm. and it's very interesting that bees when they so when the new worker bee goes out foraging foraging is the word used uh, which means that bees go to flower to flower yes the science, there is huge research done on this because bees when they come out they go to they are fixated on flowers yes they fix on one flower and they go to that flower for all their life uh, they will right. very rarely they will change flowers if the flower just finishes it is not available anymore or you move the colony they might switch to another flower but generally they remain uh, loyal to one flower and scientists are still not sure how bees recognizes a flower how it knows that this is the species of flower i have to go to and uh, bees why don't they go to other sources where other bees or other kind of insects go mm. uh bees you will not find bees going to for example a dustbin to find something or to uh, a place where there's a lot of smell bees will go to the to flowers mm. which have very good scent and very interestingly the holy quran you the holy quran actually says eat of every kind of fruit and then pursue submissively the paths prescribed by your lord so allah taala allah the allah taala says over here that he has prescribed these paths mm. and this is a huge vast area of research bees have solved the traveling salesman problem so right okay okay i'm i'm go- i'm going to stop i'm going to stop you there because i don't want to lose either myself or or our yeah. listeners I'm actually going to take you back to one interesting point before we go on to talk about the traveling sales and and individual honeybees that go, that go out to collect from flowers they actually have got a short life don't they Yes so when bees is uh, bees are foraging they usually live uh, 3 weeks to 6 weeks right yeah right so quite a quite a short life but yeah. during that short life they're dedicated to one particular type of flower so that dedication that focus is is perhaps also something to something to reflect on as well now on to the the traveling salesman right so you're going to have to explain to our listeners what the traveling salesman problem is and how the honeybee has solved it this seems uh, an interesting topic okay. so it's a problem uh, usually uh, in mathematics um, it's also called the traveling postman problem right. so for example a postman has to deliver post in a neighborhood mm. what is the most ideal and most efficient uh, path he has to take so he can deliver all the posts that he has to deliver right Okay. So so the shortest distance it depends. 
because he has to go and navigate to different houses right. using different roads, right. what is the most efficient path that he has to take? Yes. And this requires, generally, you go with intuition, but it is called a traveling salesman problem because the if if you know the most efficient path, you it's the shortest time mm. and least um, uh, energy is used. Yes. So bees... Very interestingly, and this is fa this has fascinated scientists for decades, and uh, even the Nobel Prize was given on this, which we will discuss later. Mm. Uh, bees, when they go to flowers, they know which flowers are blooming, which flowers have nectar at the time, and they will visit up to five hundred flowers in one trip. One bee, wow. one bee will travel to five hundred flowers. On the flower, if there is no nectar it will mark it and and the mark would actually say that when the next the nectar flow will start so it might start in a few hours it might start next day but the other bees won't visit that flower incredible they incredible. know that one bee has visited it we don't need to visit it mm. and uh, there is no nectar here wow so th the whole colony works in such a fashion that you are amazed at how they are coordinating. So one bee goes out to a flower, a flowering patch. Mm. It takes uh, nectar from them. Then it goes to another patch, finds a new patch. What does the bee do? The bee, the bee comes back to the hive, communicates the exact direction, the exact distance and all the obstacles in between to the other bees. So they can go to this new patch and collect nectar from there. That's incredible. And but how exactly? I mean, if you, if you were to say to someone on the face of it that the bee goes back to the colony and tells the other bees where the nectar is and how to get there, they might think that you were um, perhaps had lost it a little bit. But I'm sure there's an explanation. How does the how does the bee communicate this? That's a very interesting question. So bees communicate by a dance. They do a dance. Right. Okay. It's a called a waggle dance. Mm. So they, they they waggle their tail, and they stand on the the hive uh, uh, using their legs, and then they dance in a circle, and other bees touch them and know how the dance is going. Now the interesting thing is, so there was one scientist called Carl von Frisch who actually won the Nobel Prize in 1973. Mm -hmm. by deciphering the dance. Right. So people knew that dance has something to do with the communication, but they didn't know what does the dance actually mean. So what happens is when a bee has sees a patch of flowers, comes back, it does the dance. The, the number of times it does it indicates the distance. Right. And the angle that it does it indicates the direction. Right. And the more vigorous it is, the more flowers there are there. Incredible. And the more the other bees can be recruited. So it's called recruitment. So other bees will be excited and they will then go. They will come back. They will they dance the same dance. And then slowly the whole colony or a, a majority of bees will go to that large patch if it is large enough. So it's very, very fascinating how they do this. And um, just one person... Lo looked at these bees very carefully and won the Nobel Prize by deciphering the dance. Incredible. And so many other discoveries are awaiting. Wow, really incredible. And 
So that explains how bees are able to communicate to each other. We've we've talked about the travelling salesman problem, and that bees have have solved this. And and I'm assuming from what you're saying that otherwise, for you said it's a mathematical problem. For mathematicians, this is this is difficult to solve because for most of us, we might think so. If we had to post some letters, we could probably figure out what the quickest way to do it would be. Why why is it such a headache? Why is it such a problem? It is in logistics. For example, if Amazon has to deliver uh, parcels mm. uh, uh, in one in one uh, go, uh, and it has it, it makes a route. I'm sure they use computers uh, and they may make a route and then they deliver them. The bees are insects. Mm. They're very small brains. Right. They somehow have developed this ability to very efficiently go and collect nectar without wasting their trips mm. for millions of years. Incredible. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. So, so we talked about how honeybees find the nectar their dedication to a particular type of flower, the fact that they're able to communicate whether or not there is any nectar left and when the nectar flow will continue again in in a particular flower and communicate to the whole colony where a patch of flowers might be and how to how to get there. So it isn't just the case. I mean, we, we talk about this idea of a superorganism, that bees are a superorganism and, and that somehow as a quality of the entire system of all of the bees together you you get somehow intelligent behavior but actually we appear to see intelligent behavior from the individual bees themselves which is which is pretty incredible as you said they've got very small brains the the, the behavior that you're describing is 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 remarkable thinking about the lessons that that gives us what do you think, on, on reflection, are the things that we can take from this? What can we learn from the bee in terms of this behavior? So from the bee, we can learn so how to work together to mm. solve a problem. Right. And many people have compared the bee colony to a human society. Because first of all, there is a queen, which uses pheromones, which is... Uh, a kind of um, uh, these chemicals mm. which subdue and control the bees. We still have not understood fully how the queen controls the whole hive. But if you remove the queens, the bees will die. Right. If you take an individual bee out and try to place it somewhere else to live, it will die. It needs the queen. It needs the hive. And that is a lesson for us that, that humanity itself needs a leader. Mm. needs one person who can lead and tell everybody what to do. That way they can be efficient. There's no infighting. They can divide tasks between themselves. They know what to collect, what to do, how to grow. And that, those are all the lessons that, uh, that bees tell us. And unfortunately, most of humanity has forgotten those lessons. Mm. Um just one more point I can make is when the new bee comes out, uh, when the queen bee um, deposits a cell, uh, the um, an egg in uh, one cell of the beehive, mm. it comes out in around 21 days, a new bee comes out. Right. It has, the new bee already somehow genetically determined 
mm-hmm. uh, and we can say it's a kind of this revelation by God. It goes through a graduation of tasks. So initially, it will just feed the newcomer, the new uh, bee, the the the, the new bees. Uh, then it will start cleaning. uh housekeeping mm. so if a bee is sick or or, or or there's some pieces or there's some dirt they'll throw it out then they start trying to then they go out then they then they feed the queen then when their time comes to go out they collect water mm. they collect propolis and then eventually when they are ready they are able to collect nectar for right. honey it's interesting that the bee colony itself determines what is needed so for example if there is a lot of bee, baby bees which is called the brood mm. which is developing then be, they require a lot of pollen which is protein right so they will collect a lot of pollen right but if the colony is preparing for winter it requires a lot of honey because honey is a winter store for bees to survive because mm. bees do not go out in the winter they yes. only go out in the summer so they will start collecting nectar for honey and if it's very hot on a day the beehive actually in all the insects is the only organism which controls its temperature right not a single bee but the hive itself is mm. very minutely controlled at 35 degrees incredible and uh, when it's very hot the bees uh, bring a lot of water so it evaporates so the temperature goes down or if it's very cold they start flapping their uh, wings very fast inside the hive so air flow can can go and the temperature can 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 rise um, so it's very fascinating how the whole colony so one bee cannot decide this mm. somehow the colony itself decides okay we have to do this we have to do this okay. uh, still a lot of things we haven't found out how how is that communication hap- happening we yes. know how they collect nectar and how they communicate yeah but how the other decisions are made we mm. don't know incredible so we've talked about this incredible behavior of the bees as a as working together as a unit and how we can sort of reflect on that as as human beings and as the, the poet john dunn said no man is an island alone unto himself and uh, the bees sort of demonstrate the power of working working together mm. as a as a society over the past few decades we have got to the point where we think of individualism as being the, the most important quality and the individual's ability to um sort of determine their own actions and and make decisions for for themselves but what the honeybee seems to be telling us is that working together for the good of the hive or society will enable uh, an incredible stability and efficiency for the entire group so that's a really fascinating idea moving on to the to the other things that we were talking about and and that you mentioned in that initial verse from the holy quran you you said about the fact that that honeybees collect the good things from various types of flowers and we we talked a little bit about the different things that that the bees collect so propolis you mentioned um nectar and pollen as well and obviously we think we think of pollen as being important because it means that um fruit can be fertilized and therefore we get the fruit that we that we want to eat and i know that bees are used in a, in a commercial way for exactly that purpose beyond that thinking about the things that 
that bees collect. What what do we know about how important those things are? You said that the Quran says that from the belly of the bee comes something that is a cure for man. And this is a really fascinating thing, a really fascinating part of it. So where do we get to with, with this? What does science tell us about the, the importance of the things that bees produce and how they might be useful to us from a health point of view? That's a very, very good question. Um, interestingly, the word honey is not used in this verse, and there's a reason for it. The Holy Quran, and I'll say it, uh, I'll just read out that uh, specific portion. There comes forth from their bellies a drink of varying hues. Mm. Therein is a cure for men. Now, interestingly, only honey is not made by bees. Bees make uh, many other things. Mm. And all of them are somehow related to the belly. Right. So, so bees make wax from which they make the hive. And wax is used in candles. Wax was used in the uh, ointment of Jesus. Right. Okay. Uh, wax was always used for um, as an ointment for, for skin conditions and many other things mm. for, for uh, in ancient um, yes. human history. So wax is one thing which they make. And wax actually comes from, from the specific wax-making organs which are under the belly of the bee itself. Right. Right. So that's that comes from the 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 belly. Now bees also make venom, which mm. comes from their back. Which uh, uh, there's a stinger at the um, end part of the bee. Yes, it that... com- also comes from the belly. And in Eastern Europe uh, and uh, Russian-speaking countries, it's used widely for uh, many kind of ailments. Now, research has been done and there's some positive aspect that these the, the bee venom might have some curative properties. Right. But more research needs to be done. Uh, then bees also make, um, so they collect pollen. So mm. pollen, when they collect, they put it on the hind legs. The hind legs, when they fold, they are on the side of the belly. So you can say they all come from the belly. Then bees also collect propolis. What is propolis? Okay, so propolis is this sticky material that bees collect mm. from tree saps or trees. So a lot of uh, trees produce a very sticky substance, mm. uh, which is on their leaves and on their uh, barks. Right. Uh, generally, they're so a small quantity, so mm. humans don't collect them, but bees do collect them. Bees bring them back to the hive and then put them all at the edges of the hive, inside the hive, uh, the entrance of the hive. And it makes uh, uh, a beekeeper's job a bit difficult because it is very gluey. So when they work with bees, uh, they have to separate the frames and it becomes very difficult because uh, of the propolis. Mm. But propolis is a very fascinating um, thing. Because propolis, they actually found, is part of the immune system of the bee or the beehive. So propolis is a very, very strong antibacterial. Mm -hmm. Um, And when the bee actually comes from outside to the hive, it it lands at the entrance where the propolis is. It cleans its feet 
and so no germs can go in and uh, the propolis on the sides actually protects the hive from all kinds of insects bacteria or all kinds of uh, 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 pathogens mm. um, if if uh, a big insect so big for example a mouse people have found a mouse has gone into a hive sometimes it happens yeah the bees will kill the mouse but it's too big to take out right. so bees will entomb it in a propolis tomb it's called a propolis tomb and Incredible. it will remain like this without uh, uh, because no bacteria can grow it will just remain like this without affecting the hive so Incredible. propolis is actually very fascinating and um, it, it, similarly in eastern europe it is now used for uh, in by many practitioners and they they believe uh, that it has many health properties mm. uh, that if you take propolis regularly it might uh, um, improve your health because it is these compounds which are um, taken from the different trees and it's and the latest paper actually showed when some bees become sick the other bees collect different types of propolis right okay so they go to different trees to collect different types of propolis and and they give it to the bee now it is fascinating because bees so it means that bees actually nurse their own sick give them a medicine that they know will work on that condition that they have Incredible. so it's very fascinating how the propolis actually uh is the integral part of the beehive incredible so another fascinating aspect of, of bee behavior that they that there are little bee doctors going out and and collecting medicine for for sick and ailing bees it, amazing and you've touched on the fact that propolis is used by by some people for its health giving benefits and are there any studies is there any evidence that 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 propolis has uh, has these sort of effects that we're looking at in terms of improving health if you ask me human studies mm. then no but right. animal there have been numerous animal studies right. uh, which have shown so propolis can be used as a cream uh, on skin to heal wounds mm. it can be used it ha- they they have come up with propolis shampoos uh propolis toothpaste mm. uh so and a lot of pe- people in eastern europe swear by these products and mm. they say these are better than uh, what uh, commercially available products now there have been doctors who give propolis uh, capsules mm-hmm. so you can eat propolis it's not harmful um now what are the health benefits clinical trials need to be done so we actually don't know mm. so i mm. can't say that it is beneficial there are indications that from animal studies that it might have uh it might have some benefits uh um uh, but studies need to be done right okay so so we've talked about propolis as well and i guess um the main thing that people will recognize as being a thing that bees make um is honey um everyone is familiar with honey It's nice on on toast. I, I guess some people will have the idea, or most people will have the idea, that it can be good for you when you have a cold, honey and, and lemon, or honey and ginger. But beyond that, is there any evidence that it that it's good for you? That it has any health giving benefits? That it's a cure? 
that's a very fascinating question so if we go back to history mm. honey was the main sweetener that man used for thousands of years mm. so we have evidence uh, from cave paintings that's 8000 years ago right uh, man used to go and collect honey from beehives which is at the moment very dangerous profession because the bees will sting you mm. nowadays you have these uh, uh, be suits which yeah. protect you from the stings but that was quite dangerous but why would they collect it they mm. would collected it first because it's a very sweet substance mm-hmm. um and and second because we have historical records from e- egyptian hieroglyphics roman times greek uh if you look at uh, the indian history everywhere you see honey has always been used in medical cure right in many many formulations they would put in honey it is very clear uh, the real latest research and latest research has shown that honey is a very good antibacterial right uh, when applied to on topically right uh, okay. on the skin so in the world war 2 actually honey was extensively used uh, in world war 1 also extensively mm. used mm. for curing the wounds of soldiers because Incredible. when you cover them with honey first of all it it appears to be uh, healing faster mm-hmm. the granulation tissue does not get infected and the, the the it kills the bacteria but when at with the end, advent of antibiotics uh, the the use of honey went down mm. uh, a lot it's now resurging again but that has been established there are many many clinical trials which have shown that honey is very good for topical infection burns and uh, uh, but the question arises what other diseases the major diseases if you take yes. uh, is honey useful for yes. that because we don't tend to think of honey as something we put on the outside yeah we tend to think of honey as something that we would put on the inside that we would eat so so it still gets used today in hospital yes so resistant uh, wounds or wounds that are not getting healed mm. uh using standard gauze um, standard treatment uh honey has been shown to even heal those kinds of wounds bed sores very long bed sores um diabetic ulcers yeah. so uh, there have been examples case reports even cl- many clinical trials which mm. have shown mm. it uh and meta analysis have been done which show that honey is as good as the standard treatment and it might even be better but we need more data but mm. one thing is proven that honey actually is uh very effective in wound healing yeah. you've you've thrown a little bit of medical jargon at as there as as well and a reminder of the fact that as i mentioned at the beginning of the program that you're a medical doctor by training you also said that you're an epidemiologist now i think probably appropriate to the discussion that we're about to have about the further medical properties of honey it's worth explaining to our listeners what an epidemiologist is and what it does it's not someone who researches honey or bees no no uh, an epidemiologist looks at patterns in diseases in population or right. in groups of people right and then tries to find out what causes those diseases mm-hmm. um or how to change some of the factors which contribute to those diseases and if those factors are responsible for those diseases so you can change them and actually reduce the burden 
of that disease. So, in a sense, an epidemiologist looks at for at the population of London and says these many people die of accidents, these right. many people die of heart disease, these many people die of uh, of uh, cancer, mm-hmm. and then but he also looks at the factors which cause them air pollution, uh, unhealthy eating. Is it obesity? Is it because we're not exercising? But uh, epidemiologists also, uh, in some small groups, also um, intervene. So those are called clinical trials. Right. When they take a group of people uh, and then randomize them. Randomize means that they flip a coin, kind mm-hmm. of, and put some people in one group and another, and, and some people in another group. And to one group, they give uh, a drug or a medicine or a procedure. And another group, they give... Uh, no, do not give that drug and see if that drug actually affects the disease. Mm. And that's the goal, the standard way of actually establishing if a drug actually works. Right, right. Pro- probably the aspect of work that people are most familiar with will be the link between smoking and lung cancer. And as we all know, there inevitably are the anecdotes, the stories about so-and-so who smoked 50 cigarettes a day and lived to be 150. But we also know now that there is a very, very strong link between smoking and lung cancer. So which is not to say that everyone who smokes gets lung cancer, but that it significantly increases your risk. Is that is that right? Am I explaining that properly? Yes, that is exactly how what epidemiology is. So epidemiology does not look at individual cases because um, if I can I can probably remember some elder in my family who smoked but lived very long, or somebody else can do that. Mm-hmm. Those are cases which are out of the norm. What epidemiologists look at is averages. Yes. So in a population, in a group of people. And a, a group can be small, 20, 25, but the group can be large. But uh, And anything which is a group which, on average, for example, smokers would have more cancer than non-smokers. Mm. But on an individual basis, epidemiologists cannot say that this person would get lung cancer because it becomes it all comes down to probabilities because the lung cancer actually is caused by many factors the major one would be smoking but also genetics mm. what he eats his way of living uh, there's so many factors that and and but on average when you look at people those who smoke will get lung cancer right higher proportion of those smoking will get lung cancer that's epidemiology right. so you look at populations not right. at people. So what does the epidemiological evidence tell us about honey? What what research have you done in this respect? And what does it tell us about honey? I am looking at those studies, uh, clinical trials, uh, where we separate the groups of people. So people mm-hmm. have done clinical trials on honey when they compared honey to sugar. Right. So over here, I will just explain what honey is. So honey is 80% sugar. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, 17% water and around 3% are uh, organic compounds, bee compounds, and plant compounds and many enzymes. Um, And all the major activity uh, of like antibacterial activity or antioxidant activity, which means that they are beneficial for uh, some of the 
things which injure our body hmm. they are in those that 3% but somehow those things cannot be separated more than 600 compounds have been discovered in honey right. up till now right, right. Uh, many of them are very small quantities but hmm. somehow overall they affect how uh, honey is different from sugar so my research is that honey actually is is it different from sugar or not actually we don't know the answer to that question right many people believe that honey is good for health mm-hmm. but it is a belief without evidence people will give anecdotal evidence i eat honey and i got better which is fine but to persuade the medical community and to change clinical practice you have to do a, a trial or clinical trials which where you compare honey to something which is similar yeah okay why i am interested in this question mm. is uh because lately uh there has been some evidence that uh a lot of uh, increased amount of eating sugar uh might be responsible or might con- be contributing to the obesity epidemic mm. and also the increase in diabetes risk in a uh, western population uh now because of that who came out with a statement last year where they said that that uh, to reduce the burden of um, obesity and these chronic diseases mm. sugars in general should be uh the intake should be limited yes and they named it uh free sugars free sugars means that they are not packaged within a product for example milk sugar is not included right fruits are not included right they're called in uh but if you put sugar in your tea or if you have a fizzy drink or a juice where a sugar has been added they call it free sugar and right. these are the extra calories according to who you don't need right right so, okay and but who has also included honey in that category right. so in effect uh, who is saying reduce the intake of honey right and you've already said that honey is 80% sugar 80% sugar. sugar right so the question i want to ask is is honey really only sugar or is it does it have different effects on health compared to sugar Right. is it better for diabetic patients or not is it better for heart disease patients or not compared to sugar uh what kind of amount is good for you how much you should eat how long you should eat it that you should see an effect uh those people who for example put a sugar in their tea or coffee if they switch to honey would it affect their health so these are the kind of questions i'm trying to ask right okay fascinating so uh, and i guess it comes down to that the 3% that you talked about there's 80% sugar 17% water and 3% other things mm. which are there in the honey itself and i guess then this comes down to the idea that's expressed in the verses that you mentioned at the beginning about different hues so we i think we recognize that there are different types of honey that you can get heather honey and all 
these other manuka honey, fascinating different types of honey based on, on, from my understanding, where the bees have collected their nectar from. Is is that all there is to it? Is it just about where the where the honey has been collected from? What what different properties can we tell by looking at this honey? Yeah, that's a very good question. So the Quran mentions hues. Uh, hues means colors. So it says that the different that the product that comes out is of different colors. Yeah. And honey, uh, we know that uh, they are different colored honeys yeah. uh, with different tastes. And the color is primarily uh, determined by the flower. So right. from which flower the bees collect honey. So if they collect honey from heather, it would have a different taste and the composition of its um, the composition itself will be different because honey has a very specific taste doesn't it compared to sugar i mean i think we all recognize that that if you were to um take a a spoonful of honey and a spoonful of sugar you would immediately recognize which of those the honey was and it's a strong flavor mm. And what you're saying is that it's just that three percent material that is giving it that that flavour. Yes. And 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 therefore perhaps those particular properties that a particular honey might have. Yeah, that is correct because uh, it's uh, we know that there are compounds in that three percent which are very strongly antibacterial. So all the wound healing, mm. some of it can be sugar also because very high concentration of sugar stops bacteria from multiplying. But there are other compounds which have been discovered mm. in that 3% which are very strongly antibacterial. The interesting thing is when you separate them out, they don't work very well individually. But right. somehow honey in itself uh, as a package works very well. Uh, and different flowers uh, produce different honeys. Uh, so you have buckwheat honey, you have heather honey, you have clover honey uh, so all these different honey there are around 40 honey uh, honeys which are available commercially yes but potentially every flower can produce different honey so you can potentially have uh, tens of thousands of honeys yes but commercially in europe and in america there are 40 which are producing such a large amount that they can you can find them on shelves yes. now the interesting thing is these different honeys have different flavors different aromas uh, different comp- compositions and uh, when they did tests on the different properties of the chemicals they're also slightly different the antibacterial activity is different if mm. different honey so for example manuka is very highly antibacterial right uh, but heather also is very high and some are low uh, and some are good for gra- uh, for certain type of bacteria and some are good for other types of bacteria right. so right. so we know that but the question is is do we know if a certain type of honey is better for, for example, diabetic patients? Mm. That actually nobody has asked that question. Right. right. So we don't know. So the studies I'm looking at, I'm currently doing a review of all the studies done on honey, the clinical trials that have been performed. And except for two of them, so I got, uh, I have eight studies which uh, um have been done well mm. and which can be uh, summarized and which can be looked at. And only two of them actually reported that they used a specific flower honey. The right. other six actually just used a mixed honey. Um, and that's a problem. A lot of honey that is sold in like supermarket like Tesco's or Asda 
is actually mixed by the manufacturers. Right, right. Um, to uh, to to get a certain taste and color, because people are now accustomed to you looking at honey and. If it is too white or it's too dark, they probably don't like it. So they mm-hmm. want a certain yellow golden color which flows very well and doesn't have these uh, and it has been uh, filtered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are accustomed to it. But this, but if you go to um, countries in Europe like Spain, Italy, Greece, over there, the honeys from specific flowers are more popular. Right. So you will find clover honey there, heather honey there, uh, um, and uh, various other honeys, um, fireweed honey, mm. uh, very specific uh, honeys also. And those demand a higher price. But people over there, some people swear by a certain kind of honey just either because of taste or some people say they might be good for that disease. Right. So for example, in Pakistan... Uh, people say that there is one honey called neem honey which is good for diabetes. Now, nice. that is an anecdotal evidence which I uh, read and many elders in our uh, community actually have said that. But if you look at the literature, there is no evidence. Similarly, in Nepal, for example, there is honey. There's, there's no evidence because it... Because there it is, hasn't been looked at, or because no study, uh, scientific studies haven't been done. Right. right so, right. Uh, I'm not saying that they don't work. I'm just saying we don't know. As a scientist, I look at evidence. Yes. Uh, but if somebody says that that a certain honey might have some benefit, as a scientist, it is my job to look at it in a very scientific manner. Mm. Um, so, in for example. In Nepal, there is one honey which is collected uh, by bees uh, in high mountains. And I was reading online, and people who have gone there to get that honey, it's very popular, people go from all around the world to get that honey. They say that that honey is very good for um, some heart conditions. Now, no clinical trials have been done, no studies have been done, but, but the local people swear by it. Yeah. And this is and this is the dilemma here that the, these these anecdotal uh, evidence folk um, um, tales, old wives' tales are there. We haven't done the scientific studies for it. Yes. But if you look at Chinese medicine, similar tales were passed on, but then they did a lot of scientific studies and established the benefits of many of their products. Yes. Yeah. So similar work needs to be done in honey. Yeah. Okay. And we and we've the the Chinese medicine example is probably one of one of the most significant ones because there have been specific drugs which have been discovered yeah. and and then are you being used commercially after having been proven from from the from Chinese medicine traditional Chinese yeah. medicine. So so it's a really fascinating idea that honey could potentially have lots of different uses as a cure. Um, as you said, in most cases, the research has yet to be done. But in terms of the things that are there within the honey itself, you said that we know that the compounds have antibacterial properties. They have certain properties which could be, which could be potentially have uses. 
reflecting back on the verse of the Holy Quran, it, it, it says that the honey comes from the belly of the bee. Do you think there's a significance to that? A lot of significance. Right. Okay, so first of all, um, this is very fascinating. So the belly of the bee, I was... Um, uh, when I first started on in this research, I looked at why is the belly of the bee used? Like, why is that term specially used? And it's very fascinating that uh, I looked at the history and I found out that for a long time, many people, non-Muslims, used to uh, raise allegations against the Holy Quran that the Holy Quran is wrong here. Mm. Because for centuries... Uh, people thought that bee goes to the flower, gets the nectar in its mouth, comes yes. back, deposits it in the hive, yep. and that's it. And then they flap their wings and the nectar becomes thick and becomes honey. Right. But when the the microscope was discovered in late 1800s, actually somebody looked at, opened the bee and looked at how the nectar is uh, carried, they actually found out that bees... When they collect nectar, it goes inside their mouth to a special stomach in their belly. Right. It's called the honey sac right. or honey stomach. It goes there. The nectar mixes with bee enzymes and bee compounds. And a lot of changes happen in those compounds. A lot of reactions happen. New compounds are formed. Incredible. And when the bee comes back to the hive, it deposits that material from the belly it comes out from the belly right. and it gives it to another bee and then and that bee actually takes it and then um uh processes it then it goes from bee to bee and eventually it is deposited and that's the interesting fact is that bee is not does not get the nectar and just makes honey it contributes its own chemicals and compounds to the nectar to make honey. So it's a mixture of plant and the bee. And the Holy Quran has... Any, can you imagine 1400 years ago some the Holy Quran is saying something which scientists only found out in eighteen late 1800s mm. that the, actually the nectar goes to the belly and from the belly it comes out. Incredible. So this is also a very strong uh, argument for the truth of the Holy Quran. That the Holy Quran was right all along. Incredible. And and what else has modern science told us about the the property of the things inside the belly and the significance of that in terms of the processing of the honey? Okay, so uh, recently, I think very recently, uh, a paper was published a, um, which actually some scientists actually showed that the the belly of the bee has certain kinds of bacteria or right. a microbiome. It's called a microbiome, but it means that there are certain kind of bacteria in that um, sac or in that belly. And those bacteria, similar to what our gut has a lot of bacteria, mm -hmm. the bee bacteria also contributes to the transformation of nectar to honey. Right. And they actually found out a lot of antibacterial properties actually come from these bacteria itself. Right. 
So we're talking about friendly bacteria. Friendly. So, so people are familiar with the idea of friendly bacteria, the sort of stuff that you get in your yogurt and everything else. And as you say, there's bacteria inside our own gut. And this bacteria inside the gut of the bee has a beneficial effect on the honey and gives the honey the properties that mean that it has antibacterial properties. Yes, that is true. So these are good bacteria which somehow affect the the honey and gives it a lot of properties this is very recent research a lot of discussion a lot of uh, and and we scientists are fascinated by this mm. because the more you look the more you reflect as the holy quran says the more you reflect the more you find out yes. and you're fascinated by how complex this organism is mm. how different various aspects from behavior to biology to uh to its mathematical ability to its communication everything is so fascinating yes. in this creature and yes. holy quran described all of this in a nutshell in two verses incredible absolutely incredible thank you very much for joining us today that was an interview with dr dosif khan on the health benefits of honey you've been listening to weekend world on the voice of islam do join us again soon